Hello and welcome back to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series, supported by the International Society of Biomechanics and Sports and sponsored by Vicon. I'm Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk and today I'm joined by Dario Katzola, who is an Associate Professor in Biomechanics at the University of Bath, or Bath, depending whereabouts you're from. Um, Dario is a member of the Rugby Science at Bath Research Group, and his research interests include the modelling and simulation of human movement to investigate injury mechanisms and to understand human function. So following on from one of the previous lectures in this series by Alex Atak, looking at rugby place kicking biomechanics, Dario is going to do a presentation today um, looking at estimating spinal loading in rugby activities. So if anybody has any questions as we're going along, type it in the live chat on YouTube and then we'll get to those at the end of the presentation. But thanks very much for joining me, Dario. And over to you. Well, thanks a lot, Stuart. It's a it's a great. Um, I'm very happy, you know. I'm very happy and very excited to be here. It's a it's a great initiative, and uh, you've done a great job in uh, setting this up and uh, advertising it as well. Very well, well done. Thank you. So, as you um, as you said today, our sport of biomechanics application is about rugby, really. And um, what I want to do today is give you guys a bit of an idea of what kind of methods uh, you want to use when you want to estimate um, spinal loading in rugby activities. And also I'm gonna go through what are the pros and cons of these kind of methods and what are the different ways to link them up in order to get out some uh, reliable, hopefully, uh, and um, results, uh, results and results that make sense as well. Before um, diving into the presentation, I would like to thank all um, my collaborators, because what I'm presenting today is really a group work and uh, and um, that our funders as well. So mainly the RFU Injured Player Foundation and the camera project funded by EPSSC. Right, so um, now I introduce you to the um, main characters of this presentation, the, the rugby activities we're gonna talk about um, in the next um, 45 minutes or so. So on the left-hand side, you've got an example of tackling in rugby, and uh, you know you can decide to watch the video or not if um, you prefer not uh, to. Uh, and on the right-hand side, uh, the scrummaging. Um, really, to me, the you know these kind of activities are really fascinating. They they kind of show um, great technical abilities and the physical abilities of rugby players. And uh, you know if you think about uh, tackling, they are it's a very high dynamic uh, event where you've got um, collisions with forces going up to five kilonewtons. And if you want you know, uh, to have a, an idea of what you're gonna go, what you're gonna experience if you tackle someone, it's like a stopping a 200 kilo motorbike uh, running at eight kilometer per hour against you. So good luck with it. Um, and, uh, but the scrum is instead a, a more, more like a group um, related kind of activities where there are very high forces as well. And, um, and the forces that they can, they can get up to are about uh, 14 kilonewtons as a whole kind of pack. But unfortunately, from a from a biomechanics perspective or injury prevention perspective, um, we do analyze and study a lot of those kind of um, activities because of uh, quite alarming statistics. So even though the number of catastrophic injuries, and I'm talking about cervical spines, catastrophic injuries, um, in, in rugby um, is not very high, 
unfortunately, the severity related to those injuries is, um, it is very high. And, um, and if you look at the catastrophic injuries only, what you can see is that 40% of those injuries are related to tacos as crumb. So as biomechanists or injury prevention researchers, what we want to do is to try to minimize as much as possible those injuries, because that those injuries can also result in, um, in tetraplegia or quadriplegia or paraplegia. Uh, um, and it's very impairing, as you, as you might understand, uh, for rugby players and from a societal level as well. But how do we do that? So um, as you can see here in this slide, um, I included one of the quite the various injury prevention model you can find in the literature. And uh, this is from, from Mechelen 1992. And I'm not talking about it a lot because uh, um, this series of seminars is such, such a great series that this kind of uh, cycle has been already presented in series one by, um, in week one, sorry, by Alisa Dempsey. And uh, what I want to show you is what you should do if you want to answer uh, a specific research question in injury biomechanics that might be related, for example, how to minimize touching injuries. So the first step is really to understand what's the magnitude of the injuries you're talking about. So it's more related to epidemiological studies um, and uh, understanding what's the extent in the injury as well. And the second step is understanding what are the causes of the injuries. And if you are an injury biomechanist or biomechanist, this is essentially the step you want to work on. And to me, that's a very important step because when I when I talk about causes, really what I, what I want to say, I want to say that I'm talking about injury mechanisms, which are to me the main and the most important kind of way to understand how to prevent those. And uh, ideas from prevention must be related uh, to these causes. And once we've got this kind of idea for prevention, we can test them out. From um, a biomechanics perspective, um, my, my view is that there are, you know, it's in, in rugby mainly, there are very different studies that are trying to analyze this kind of causes. However, these studies are mainly either observational studies or studies based on video analysis or personal reports. And there are some quantitative kind of study where um, some kinematics and kinetic analysis have been, um, you know, have been uh, shown. And uh, these are the more quantitative, but still are, not answering exactly that question. And uh, also there is a recent focus on concussion, uh, which is slightly different uh, from focusing on survival spine injury mechanisms. So what I believe is that uh, really, if we really want to understand uh, what are the injury mechanisms here, uh, we need, we need to, to do it in a, using an integrated approach. And in the literature, there is still an open debate between you know, buckling, or hyperflexion being the, the main mechanism. I'm gonna talk about later about those kinds of mechanisms. And, uh, but still the main problem to me is that all these kind of um, studies have in some extent failed um, in answering the question um, that I'm showing uh, you know, at the bottom of the slide. So what's the link between the external load applied to the system and the internal load experienced uh, by our joints. So in terms of the spine, what's the internal load experience at, at the intervertebral joint level? And that's very much also related uh, to the type of kinematics that you would see. So if we can answer that question, then we can, we can understand what are, what are the injury mechanisms. Otherwise, it's very difficult to do so. So now we got our research question and we are very happy with it. Um, 
to me, the second step is to understand what are the key variables that we need to measure in order to answer that question. And as, as an injury biomechanist, uh, what I want to do, if I want to understand what are the injury mechanisms, I want to be sure that I know um, enough about the external load applied to the system. And I know enough also about the internal load applied to the system. When I talk about uh, the internal load, really, um, I'm talking about the load generated by the muscle forces here, but also the load related to the passive response, for example, of the spine. So we're talking about ligaments and um, uh, intervertebral discs. Also, if it's possible, um, I would like to know what's, what's happening in terms of motion. So I would like to know how all the vertebrae are moving. Of course, um, we are not in a ideal world and we are not, we cannot use like dynamic MRI or X-ray while someone is tackling someone else. So that's um, probably uh, very difficult to do, but that's in an ideal world what I would like to have. And I strongly believe that if I, if I did have this kind of information, that I would probably be able to understand how the limits of our system are exceeded. And therefore, I will be able to link up what's happening, um, what's the link between the external load and the internal load as well. We have, you know, went through the, we have gone through the, um, the different uh, variables now. Um, and now. So the, the idea is that knowing the variables, we want to know what are the methods that we, we can use in order to, um, to measure those. And uh, I'm really a, a big fan about an integrated approach, which maybe means that I like to do many different things and nothing doing uh, nothing particularly well, but a lot of things. Um, and uh, looking at this, uh, you can see that there are three main kind of methods that um, I, I would like to highlight to, to answer those that, that research question. The first one is in vivo. So, in vivo methods, methods are essentially methods that are based on analysis of something that uh, is a living organism and uh, is a whole living organism. And uh, a rugby player is a living organism indeed. And uh, what you can do with, with in vivo uh, kind of measurement, you can measure what's happening actually in the real world. Maybe you can now go down to the, you know, um, very invasive uh, measurement because uh, it's not ethically possible, but you are able to, measure you know kind of um, what's happening um, you know during an actual tackle or an actual scrum um, consider also all the facts and all the um, um, you know the behavior of the rubber player as well the second type of method is called in vitro um, in vitro methods in, in latin in vitro means um, in glass and so essentially in this case rather than having a a living organism we've got only a part of that living organism that living is not um, longer and uh, um, what, what's happening here is that uh, what you want to do is want to be able to focus your analysis on a part of that body and uh, be able to replicate some uh, conditions that are very close to the real world condition and um, for example here you can see uh, that there are three big spines that are loaded uh, with uh, you know uh, using an axial rig or you can use some anthropometric testing devices here and uh, even though they are not, this kind of method is not as realistic as the in vivo, that will give you the opportunity to, for the first time, get some information about uh, injurious events. And finally, uh, what I uh, truly love in my research is doing some uh, in silico analysis. In silico means that you're doing things on a computer, essentially. And uh, the, thing, the thing that I really like is that um, if you are good enough to create a good simulation, 
you're able to integrate all the information coming from in vivo and the information coming from in vitro in order to, to have a very reliable and realistic um, analysis and or simulation. But how do we link them up? So um, in the next two slides, I'm gonna show you what I believe um, are the different pathways that you can follow depending on the type of data that you have and the type of research question that you are trying to answer. Anyway, the first step is to get some information about what's happening in the real world. So to me, um, you know, it's very important to use all the um, data set coming from video analysis and analysis, you know, based on a, um, a statistic based on videological studies in order to be able to cluster a different type of, for example, tackles or get all the information um, that we need in order to describe them. Once we've got that, what you can do, you can try to replicate the same, the same kind of task in, the, in, in your lab and the lab will be a more controlled environment. And of course, it's not gonna be exactly the same tackle. It's not gonna be as realistic as something that happened during a match or um, a training session. But the, the, the lab will allow you to use very accurate kind of instrumentation. So you can get very good kinematics, very good ground reaction forces, very good um, muscle activation for them. And this kind of information can be used as input for in silico analysis. And uh, you know, uh, I've said analysis, so remember that I said analysis here because in this case, this kind of computer simulation are driven by data set. And what, we can, we, what can we do with kind of uh, in silico analysis? Well, you can run uh, some procedures like inverse kinematics, um, inverse dynamics. You can also knowing the motion and the forces applied to the system, try to solve what is called the redundancy problem and, and, and estimate what are the, the muscle activation uh, that you know, solve that motion really. And once you got the muscle activation, you can also calculate the joint reaction forces. To know more about that, again, this series is great because uh, Professor Balzopoulos in a couple of weeks ago or more probably, um, um, gave a fantastic presentation on, on this kind of um, the, the terminology that you want to use and the different type of procedures that you, you would use to, in, in this kind of analysis. So have a look to that if you wish. The other kind of pathway is, um, sorry, um, go back to, to that. So in this case, if you do this, of course, we are trying to analyze um, an non-injurious event. So of course you can get a rugby player in the lab, you can ask, rugby player to do many things, but not to get injured in your lab. So you are, well, when you're studying here, you are studying a non-injurious event, really. The other pathway, which is more related to in vitro testing, then, you know, will allow to do something different. So the actual idea is the same, you measure things here, and then you run some analysis um, afterwards. But in this case, as you um, I already understood, um, you are now analyzing something that is injurious. So you can run the same, uh, ID and IK, so inverse kinematics and dynamics, and you can calculate joint reaction forces. Uh, although, you know, in this case, you need to know that there are no muscles unless you've got an ATD, so an anthropometric testing device with actuators. Um, so in this, we, we've been talking about the analysis. So we you, you use like in vitro, in vivo, and uh, in silico to run some analysis. Analysis driven by, in, by data, really. But there is another approach you can have, which is mainly related to um, simulation. So the starting point is the same, but um, the second step is actually very, very similar. It's actually the same, you do some in vivo testing, you do some analysis, um, 
and you get out some information about, for example, what's the kinematics, so the technique used, for example, during a tackle, what's the muscle activation. And that's information that is very much related to a non-injurious event, but it's very realistic. You're measuring that in vivo on that player. At the same time, you can do something different. You can say, okay, um, I cannot do, I cannot generate um, or replicate an injury with a with a with a living organism, so uh, i.e. a rugby player, and uh, I can do it with an ATD, and uh, I can replicate an injurious event. And what I get out is um, very very important information, and probably more reliable information to some extent about the the load, which is an injurious load in this case, um, and about the tissue strain, depending on type of you know in vitro analysis that you do. But the great thing now is that you can integrate this information and run simulation rather than just analysis. So yeah, now you're trying to replicate, fully replicating an injury, having information that is coming from, a, uh, from the real world. So you're having like technique coming from the rugby player, muscle activation coming from the rugby player and load that is supposed to be uh, an injurious load as well or tissue strain as well. So just to clarify that, uh, um, so usually when you run an analysis, it means that uh, you, this as kind of analysis is related to more an inverse simulation where you know everything about the kinematics, you know everything, what the external kinematics, you, you, you know everything about the, the forces applied to it, and it's driven by in vivo data. And it's mainly used to calculate parameters. So in inverse dynamics analysis is an, an inverse uh, simulation indeed. A simulation, a proper simulation, uh, if you want to call it like that, uh, is a forward simulation where really could be driven initially by, by some data. So you need to tell the simulation, oh, oh, you want to start having that kind of neck angle, you want to start with having that, that muscle activation, but really what you're creating is new motion. You generate new motion, you generate something that uh, hasn't happened in the real world. You are exploring different scenarios. Um, and, that's, and that's what you want to do. Um, if you want to try to understand what are the different injury mechanisms um, in, in rugby, for example. Right, so in, hopefully that, that kind of uh, help out to uh, set the, the background and, uh, and give you an idea of uh, what are the methods and what are the different pathways that we, you can use, you can follow to answer uh, the main research question that we have here, which is what are the injury mechanisms? And um, now I'm going to show you, um, you know, examples of how how we collected this kind of data on, on in relation to tackling and, and, and scrummaging, and um, what are the pros and cons relating to this kind of methods, and then um, I'm going to show you the um, simulation results as well. So starting from uh, in vivo, uh, so that's an example of how we replicated a tackle in the lab. Um, so we asked, uh, I think, about 16 rugby players to pop over to, to Bath, as I said, as Stuart said before. Uh, and uh, we used a motion capture system to collect uh, the um, three-dimensional uh, motion of the of the, uh, of the both the, the player and the punchback that in that case was uh, our kind of ball carrier. The punchback was also uh, equipped with, with like some pressure sensors that we used to estimate forces. And we also used ground reaction forces um, to, to, to measure the um, uh, sorry, sorry, some force plate to measure ground reaction forces. At the same time, we measure also muscle activation uh, at, at the, for the spinal muscle, sternocleidomastoid, trapezius, erectus pinae, um, 
we did also test different type of angles and uh, because we wanted to know what was the effect of the uh, direction of the tackle. And, um, and we also tested different, um, the, you know, the laterality. So how the tackle were performed, um, performed using either the uh, dominant or non-dominant shoulder. This is just an example of uh, how long it takes and uh, how many people you need to do something like that. And uh, I can tell you that operator was only one. The other people just put in some double-sided tape and, and extra things. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it's good fun. It's quite, it's quite long, but it's a very good fun. And uh, now you can see the probably two hours preparation to have like uh, five or six tackles. Right, let's now, now understand what, why is good or what, was, what are the pros and cons of this kind of analysis. Well, as we said before, uh, tackling technique is uh, usually, you know, this kind of analysis will allow you to have a, a to measure a very good tackle technique uh, very accurately and um, mainly in relation to head position, head angles and trunk angles. Recently, actually, there is a, um, uh, some a Japanese um, research group published uh, something that to me is very very important. They also managed to ask. They managed to get rugby players to tackle with a bad technique, uh, which is quite a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but it's, that, that's incredible valuable uh, information that you want to have um, in order then to run simulation afterwards. The other very important thing is that uh, uh, you can measure muscle activation. As I said at the beginning, we want to know what are, what's the internal load applied to the system and muscle muscles are generated by internal load as well. And we are now what kind of studies, we kind of saw that uh, both in scrummaging and, and tackling, there is a pre-activation uh, level uh, before the actual impact. So the, the, this kind of, this um, dashed black line is the experimental EMG and the impact is uh, happening after, after this point. And uh, you can see there is a, an activation which goes up from between 40% to 7% of the maximal activation. So they are pre-activating before the input, as of course you want to do before um, a collision. Um, however, there are, there, is, there are some cons, let's say. So the force is only estimated uh, using pressure sensors and the pressure sensors are calibrated and uh, are okay in the sense that the, the magnitude is always, um, uh, could be using we 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 found that the magnet can be quite high. You get uh, up to four to six kilonewtons, which is not uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, out of the ballpark picture you expect. But really, um, you, you, it's not like having a load cell. A pressure sensor is not as reliable. Um, the good thing is that usually the the, the the shape of the curve that you get out is, is quite good, which is, again, is very important if you want to run simulation, because at least if you've got the shape of the curve, then you can play with the magnitude, for example. The other kind of method uh, we use is related to in, in vitro methods. And uh, you you can, what we did, we used both um, anthropometric testing devices, uh, so dummy heads here, which is very handy uh, because you can measure very well forces and you can get your colleagues around after uh, running around, uh, running after, sorry, a punch bag. And here you have uh, some, you can use also some animal specimens. Uh, I mentioned that before as well. These are three pig spines which are uh, loaded um, with a, a scrummaging type of load. And in terms of the instruments you want to have, you want to use uh, kinematics. 
uh, motion capture system, sorry. You want to, you can use um, DIC, which is digital image correlation. And um, you can also, you want to use some uh, load cells to, for example, during the animal, um, the animal specimen related uh, tests to uh, measure the load, the cranial and the caudal load here. This is just an example, um, more detailed example of what we have done. So we, we, you know, we became very good friend of the local butcher. We went there, we got some young spines and, uh, and we gave them a walk essentially. Uh, that's what we did. And, uh, and they, you know, from a technical perspective, what is very important to highlight here is that uh, um, using the, the DIC, what you can do, you can get information about the strain that are happening at different uh, vertebral levels. So, I uh, apologize because I, I believe that for the first time you see this video, you don't understand what you're looking at. And uh, um, I can tell you that these are the different vertebrae and there, there are some intervertebral discs uh, in between. And uh, these kind of different colors will give you an idea of the amount of strain that you have um, during that impact as well. So for the first time here, we can replicate an injury. As you can see, we did replicate some injuries um, and um, we had some structural damage as well. And uh, the structural dam damage that we saw actually was uh, structural damage that um, was very similar to the typical um, injuries that you will uh, you will get um, you know on, on the rugby pitch, unfortunately. So uh, both for scrummaging and tackle, uh, tackling, the bilateral fast dislocation in the lower cervical spine is, is quite common, unfortunately. And we did see those injuries uh, on on those kind of big spines. So I think that's the first step to say, you know, that's the loads that the load we are applying is, is good. The injury that we see is very similar. Potentially we are replicating exactly the, um, the injury mechanism that uh, is there. But that's a potential. You need to be sure about it. And to be sure about it, you need to have you need to make another step. What we did in terms of um, uh, anthropometric, uh, so you know, ATD or like dummy head analysis, uh, we 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 tried to analyze the effect of the head angle during a, a misdirected load during a tackle. So head first in, in, in impact during a tackle. Um, you can there are some values there, and uh, we did different speeds. Um, and the high speed, you know, the high the peak went up um, to 2.4 kilonewtons, and low speed 1.4 kilonewtons. Uh, and the, the the kind of head down position um, was, uh, you know, uh, shown the highest load as well. However, I'm not a big fan about uh, dummy, you know of dummy dummy heads really, because even though you can get a very good replication of the injurious event, mainly sorry, you can get a, a replication of the injurious event. You can very much uh, measure uh, force in a reliable way. Uh, and you can use this kind of information as input for computer simulation. There is a big question mark related to the biofidelity of, of this kind of um, testing devices, which um, actually is not great. And uh, you know the range of motion is not essentially the range of motion that you expect. Uh, they are validated for a specific input. So depending on the one that you use, you want to be sure what kind of uh, validation is related to that dummy hand. And the stiffness is not usually the stiffness you expect during a tackle. Also, you are seeing something that is a, a passive response. We also tried to do like a bit of a hybrid kind of approach where we did some in vitro and in, in vivo uh, analysis. And we measured essentially, um, we, this is a dummy head here, guys, ATD. And then there, are, there is a, a three, um, 
person, three people scrum. And uh, yeah, so what we did, we uh, measured the forces with using a Stuentisar machine and the forces using a dummy head whilst we measured the EMGs on, on the player. So the good thing is that we got some EMGs doing an actual, uh, well, an actual scrum, a machine scrum a trial whilst we get some forces on, on the dummy head. Um, and also in this case, we did see a pre-activation of the uh, muscle activation during the scrum. All right, so now we've got, I think, a very good um, idea of uh, what you can measure in, in the lab and uh, what, what hopefully is, you, can, you can believe it's good uh, or, or not. Um, but next step is then to understand how to use the information to uh, in, in silico analysis. And uh, if you're interested in analyzing the injury mechanisms um, as a kind of, you know, injury biomechanist, what you want to do is to get some uh, knowledge about three, to me, three main areas. The first one is about musculoskeletal modeling. So um, musculoskeletal models are essentially made up of a, uh, is a multi-body system, um, and um, and these kind of bodies are rigid. So there is a rigid body assumption, which is very important to understand if you are doing injury injury biomechanics. Um, the good thing about MSK models, you get both. You know, you got bones, you got uh, bones, you got uh, ligaments, you got uh, muscles, and there are also muscle models. That means that you can use these kind of muscle models to solve uh, what we call the redundancy problem and get out some uh, muscle activation or replicate uh, the effect of the muscle in, in football simulation. So this is something that you want to look at. And uh, the second step is about content modeling. So content modeling to me is a, uh, essentially, uh, well, it's been, content model has been used like uh, for, for decades. And uh, um, the problem is that it's very difficult to use them. It's very difficult to validate them. It's very difficult to get reliable content models. Uh, but to me, they are the future. And because they will give you the ability to um, estimate the, the contact forces. And uh, there is great work uh, at the moment uh, being done by um, Kiran Sims and, and, and Conor McCarthy in uh, Trinity um, College in, in Dublin. Um, and um, I think that's, that's, that could be very exciting because it should be in integrated with forward dynamics as well. And then the other kind of um, method that you want to look at is uh, finite element analysis. Element analysis are more, much more detailed model with respect to MSK models, and they are not uh, reason models, but each kind of uh, body is made up of different elements, uh, which are interconnected by a specific um, equation and, and stiffness, stiffness values. And um, and the great thing is that you can get information about the, the stresses and the strain that are applied. Uh, there are experienced a different part of the vertebrae or the intervertebral discs uh, whilst you're running a simulation. The problem is that it's very difficult to set up a simulation uh, using an FE model, and um, it takes a long time. And then we need to remember that we are dealing with impact. So the classic, um, you know, quasi-static simulation that you do in FE are not really going to work. And um, so I think the approach starting from MSK models and then get inputs, uh, use the inputs from a uh, uh, MSK model to run some uh, uh, element analysis is the way forward. Right, so, but how do we, you know, um, if we want to do some silico analysis, what's the first step? The first step is, of course, to understand what kind of model you want to use. And if you, if you start from a MSK model, 
um, you want to answer you know, a few questions before uh, diving into some simulations. For example, you want to know what is the model complexity that you need. Do you need a whole body model or do you need a model that has got, is just you know, kind of focused on the spine and the head? So how many degrees of freedom do you need? Are you, do you need a generic or do you need a specific model? That will change a lot, for example, in relation to the inertial parameters that uh, you're using or the, the muscle paths that, that, that are there. And uh, as you know uh, very well, changing the muscle path with respect to a joint center, that will change also the moment arm. And if you change dramatically the moment arm, the, um, the kind of load experience at that joint can be very different. So you need to be very careful with that. The other thing that you want to think about when you're creating the model is the passive response of your model. So you need to model the kind of structure that are the passive structure that are included in the model. And, um, and these are mainly ligaments and intervertebral discs in this case. There's a very good example from Quo and Camarillo um, in 2019. And, um, and they, they decided to go you know, with a very detailed kind of model with all the ligaments. I'm gonna show that we, we use a slightly different kind of approach. Um, and, um, and also you want to know uh, what kind of actuators you want to your model. So you can have a torque-driven model or a muscle-driven model. And there's nothing wrong with a torque-driven model. It depends on your research question, really. Um, and uh, this kind of uh, actuators, uh, so if you use a muscle-driven model, again, you need to be uh, sure where you get information about your muscle paths. So yeah, so we decided to have, um, you know, what kind of, that's what that, well, that was the first step. And let's say that we want to have like a, um, had a neck model only and uh, potentially a subject specific one. And um, when you decide to do that, then the first question that you ask yourself is, is my model good enough? And usually the answer is no. And then you ask yourself, is my model good enough for input events? And the answer is no, no. So it's a, um, it's very, so if you, you know, choosing the right model and choosing the right model for the right application is, is very important. In this case, what you want to be sure about is that at least the passive, um, the passive response of, your, of a model is the one that you would expect where you have like, for example, a very high dynamic axial impact. Um, and that means that the intervertebral joints kind of behavior, passive behavior should be replicated uh, fully. Uh, to do that, essentially we step from rugby players to, to pigs again. And, um, and what we do, essentially we go uh, again to our local butcher and then we say, we need another spine. And uh, you know, the spine in this case though, I want to uh, be sure that I'm replicating very well uh, and I'm measuring very well what's happening during an axial load. And I'm even using a motion capture system. So we use some clusters here um, and other kind of markers, anatomical markers and, uh, to, you know, to, to register the model as well. And um, we um, measure the kinematics um, and the load as well. The main idea is, is that, you know, if I can get information about the kinematics, I can get information about the load, then I can try to, I can replicate, I got my subject specific model here. What I can do, I can use a, uh, a genetic algorithm so I can run an optimization and say, rather than having all the ligaments, I use very simple uh, spring dampener uh, kind of models and uh, see whether these kind of models can replicate the, the passive uh, response of my system. Um, and that's what we did. And uh, that's a, a short video about uh, uh, the, the um, 
test. So that's the moisture capture system uh, marker markers, and uh, and after that you will see the actual um, simulation. Where in pink you see the markers, the simulated marker, and in blue the experimental one. And luckily they were like on top of each other. So our model is fully um, following the replicating the, the experiments, and we are very happy because at this point what we have. We have a set of viscoelastic parameters that are really characterizing the um, um, the behavior of the spine during such a high dynamic event. We, we Pavlos um, published published a paper about it, and um, uh, that's work done also with Professor Richard Gill and Dr. Ezio Bretoni as well. What's the you know what, what what's good and what's bad? So what, what are the costs related to this approach? Uh, really, the problem is that. Okay, I mean, you might love your local butcher, and of course, you lo he loves you. Uh, but the problem is that uh, you are using still an animal specimen, and uh, the material properties and the intervertebral angles, as you can see here, can be slightly different from a human. And um, I mean, that's it's not a really a big problem for pig spine because pig spine are widely used for this kind of analysis. And it's, sometimes it's better. I think it's much better actually. To use a animal specimen rather than a cadaver, which is, you know, probably a seventy years old uh, man or woman, um, and uh, is not very is not very representative of rugby player either. And also, the other thing is that um, what we're doing here, we are replicating, we are doing that mainly with axial impacts. Um, we are in the process of um, analyzing the um, other kind of data set we got with the, you know, kind of impacts with an angle. So you can um, understand whether those parameters can be used for that as well. But that's still a bit of a question mark as, as well. The second step is then to create, we got to create the this our subject specific model about, and we that's in this case, we are talking about the rugby player. So what we did, we asked a rugby player to, um, do an MRI scan. We did a 3D volumetric MRI scan, um, and we put some fish oil markers only to um, mainly to register their position. Then during motion capture system analysis, um, Pavlos uh, Silvestros did all the segmentation. I think he still has nightmares about it, um, and uh, we can get all the bones and, and muscle, um, um, sorry, bones and muscles uh, segmented here. Also, what we did, we wanted to provide better muscle paths here. And uh, uh, we created some wrapping surfaces in MATLAB. So a sphere for the sternocleidomastoid, two tori for um, the trapezius, and um, a cylinder for the uh, spinous capitis as well, uh, semispinalis capitis. In terms of the model, this is the final model. Um, and, um, oops. Um, Yeah, the final model there. Oops, I don't know what happened. Well, there was the final model, and um, um, and uh, with all the muscles and the wrapping surface that I was talking about uh, uh, before. Also, what we did, we did um, estimate the max maximum isometric force um, using the MRIs um, and the muscle volume as well, and which ended up being, of course. Um, much bigger than a, um, a normal kind of a healthy person uh, because we're talking about rugby players indeed. But the problem with muscle is not uh, only related to the muscle paths, it's not only related to the muscle parameters you want to use in a model, it's also related to um, getting some information about 
they how they are activated um, during um, an actual event. And um, this is very important because if you think about, if you look at, at the um, at this kind of schematic here, um, again, what the forces that are you know playing a role during an injury are the external forces, gravity, inertial forces, and then the muscle forces. If you want to then uh, you know really measure what's happening uh, during a um, at the muscle or the neck muscle level, uh, what you want to do is to use some fine wire EMG. Of course, if you think about a tackle that's strong, that's something that is not an ideal and is very difficult to use fine wire during sport biomechanics as well. But th that has been done for functional movement. So what we could do really was slightly different. So again, we could get the information about the anatomy and the muscles there. We run some tests and we use four, only four EMGs, two sternocleidomastoids and two candotrapezius EMGs um, to get an idea of how this kind of big muscle groups um, were um, activated. And uh, once you, you have that, so essentially you've got all your kinematics, you've got all your external load that you measure during those kind of um, tests. And um, what you can do now, you can, you know, you go back to your analysis, you say, I can run a inverse analysis. Um, I can I can solve my redundancy problem, which is usually you know, solved using static optimization. The problem with static optimization is that you, you're using a mathematical a priori kind of uh, uh, you know approach in order to understand how different muscles are activated, and that kind of is not great when you, you're doing spinal biomechanics. It doesn't work very well, uh, and also when you're dealing with inputs, when you've got this kind of high degree of activation, high degree of co-contraction. In fact, if you try to do it uh, also with a kind of axial rotation. Um, as you can see, there is a very much on and off behavior of the muscle that are turning blue and, and, and red here, which means that you've got like activation there, you know, uh, essentially with an on and off behavior, which is something that is not really physiological. Um, and you want to find different kind of solution uh, for your kind of analysis on, on tackling a scrummaging. So what we did, I'm not going through the schematic. Maybe if you've got some question, I can do it later. Uh, but what you can do, you can get some um, trials, um, uh, calibration trials, some execution trials. You run your inverse kinematics dynamics, and you run your muscle analysis. And uh, and what you do, you can try to understand whether you're solving the redundancy problem using a static optimization, or more like neuromuscular related uh, models, like EMG assisted models, uh, can provide different results. And the hypothesis, of course, is that if you use information from the EMG to calibrate and run an EMG-assisted model, um, then your uh, activation are more physiologically plausible. That's an example of uh, the simulation that we, uh, a, a tackling simulation. And um, as you can see, uh, the, we just use a head and, and neck. In this case, we added the arms as well because the, there are some muscles attached to the scapula uh, and therefore the momentum will have changed with the arm positions. Um, and um, and what we can see here is that uh, we are we stopped the actual simulation just um, uh, just before the impact as well, because after the impact the EMG wasn't that reliable as you might imagine. So you might ask yourself, so what's the result? So um, is the static opt good enough, or you need to use EMG assisted kind of uh, models to get? 
a more physiologically plausible kind of uh, results. So here you can see the graphs, two graphs here showing the uh, CCI, which is the co-contraction index uh, during flexion extension and lateral bending kind of motion. And um, what, you, what you can see here, and if, 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 if you can you know, compare it to a second kind of uh, um, MG-assisted kind of uh, result, the level of co-contraction, um, which you find in blue for the static optimization is very close to zero, which means that the static optimization fails to, to, to replicate contraction during such activities. If you start using EMG assisted kind of models, this kind of level of co-contraction um, increases and is very close to this kind of solid black line, which is the actual um, co-contraction uh, level coming from the experimental data set. And it, it becomes closer to, to minus one here, for example. This is even better when you use EMG-assisted model, which is informed by some uh, MRIs and the subject-specific values. So they, they kind of take a message here is that if you're um, trying to understand what, what the muscle um, activation and you want to understand what's the best way to estimate the muscle activation during inverse analysis, static optimization is not the goal, the, 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 you know, the, the way forward, mainly because um, it fails at um, estimating the co-contractions. And what you want to do is using an EMG assistant model um, and get information about uh, your kind of subject using you know, subject, you know, MRIs or other type of uh, uh, tests you might do. This is also visible using the, you looking at the three different models here. So as you can see, the, the number of red muscles is uh, increasing going from the top to bottom. And that's a essentially uh, equivalent to, to this kind of graph showing the co-contraction in this as well. So that's great work that Pablo did um, in, uh, at Griffith University in the uh, Gold Coast. So apart from surfing, uh, did something else as well. Um, and that was done with Claudio Pizzolato and David Lloyd um, as well. So we talk about the good things about it. And in the meantime, you can see a, a Scrum related simulation here. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the cons about this kind of approach are related to the fact that it's rather time consuming. And uh, we had all, only data for a single participant. So we got we are now in the process to expand that kind of analysis uh, to other participants. But at the moment, that's what we have. Right, so we are very close to the uh, final part of the, of, of the lecture. And finally, I can show you some forward dynamic simulation. Super excited, really. So I need to drink some water as well and uh, for the excitement. And um, here you can see there is a, there are two different simulation of actually the same, um, so two different views of the same simulation. On the left-hand side is a sagittal view and the right-hand side is more like a frontal view of a, um, of a head-first impact um, and um, applied to the, onto the vertex of the head. So it's like what we call the cranial impact. And, um, now I'm going to show you how we set it up and uh, what are the results that um, uh, you know we, we got from the different simulations that we run, like like at these ones. So the idea here was this, the idea here was to um, try to explore all the different kind of possibility that they might have in terms of um, how a rugby player might. Um, what kind of technique a rugby player might kind of embrace you know, before or during a tackle. 
And to do that, we wanted to span across different type of neck angles, uh, more precisely 177 neck angles. Um, and we wanted to have different um, loading conditions, so different um, the loading conditions related to both the point of application of the force. There were three cranial ones, so anterior cranial, cranial anterior, cranial, cranial um, uh, central, and uh, the cranial posterior, and the four lateral one as well here, uh, lateral posterior, lateral medial posterior, medial anterior, and lateral anterior. But also, we had two different uh, loading rates, and these loading rates are coming for the test that we did with the anthropometric testing device or with the dummy head that I showed before. There are two different um, um, kind of loading rates, one for high speed and low speed. I think there is a typo here. Sorry, guys. That would be the other way around. And um, a few words about the simulation um, pipeline. Here, essentially, what we did, we used as an input in vivo, in vitro data. And we started to simulate at impact time for 50 millisecond, and then we run a forward dynamics analysis, and we get out, and we got out some intervertebral joint loads. Right. So, what are the results? What are the take-home messages? Eventually, we took it took like six years to get to this point. Uh, I mean, at least to me. Uh, let's see what we got out. Um, uh, we got out. Wow. So the first take-home message is like neck flexion is bad. Neck flexion is bad. So I'm going to show you some graphs in just a, in a few seconds. The idea is that uh, what we saw that across all the simulation that we run, neck flexion, neck flexion extension, so movement in the sagittal planes um, at the time of the impact had the largest effect on neck internal loading. So both compressive loading and, and, and shear loading. And the main reason that um, happened is because if you think about you know, your spine in more neutral position and then your spine in more flexed position. What's happening when you're flexing the spine, you're making your spine more, uh, your vertebrae more aligned. Ma making your vertebrae more aligned, that your spine become much um, stiffer. And if you then apply a force on a very stiff kind of uh, uh, system, what's happening is the energy is going through it, uh, um, uh, through it all and is not dissipated, for example, using motion. So what it means in terms of data? I understand there is a quite busy slide, so don't worry if you don't understand it. Uh, I don't understand it either. Um, it, it, the thing is that uh, what you want, what want you to look at is to look at the change in color. Um, these, here you got all the kind of uh, joint reaction forces, maximum joint reaction forces, uh, compressive reaction forces, and anterior posterior shear reaction forces, and uh, across different uh, intervertebral joints and across different also uh, loading, mainly cranial loading in this case. And what you can see, the color is changing mainly in this direction. It's, got, it's changing from a, a you, maybe I need to show the uh, actual uh, pointer. It's changing mainly in this direction. And uh, it means that this direction is flexion extension. So these changes are much more visible with respect to changes in, in this direction or also in this direction or in vertical direction, which are related to lateral bending and axial rotation. The same kind of thing happens for the shear loads as well, as you can see here. A better graph to me. So if you focus that um, kind of analysis only on the lower cervical spine, really what you can see here is a if you think if you look at the mainly cranial kind of posterior, so the red ones, 
the effect of the flexion extension angle is huge. So they, they got, when you, you're very flexed, you've got almost 3,000 Newton as a compressive force. And when you are extended, you've got here like about 1,000 Newton, so three times higher. And that happens also for the uh, cranial central uh, um, kind of loading. And it's slightly different from the, from the cranial anterior. But, and um, if you look at the lateral bending mass rotation, there is not that, there isn't that kind of trend. Um, uh, so you can, you can, there is no much uh, to, to look up in terms of uh, what's happening in relation to this kind of motions. So we know that that's, a, to me, is very, so to, to make it more like a technique, well, kind of applied comment, uh, if you're a coach or if you're a player, what you want to do when you're going to a tackle, you don't want to flex your neck too much. Otherwise, you put yourself at risk. And of course, if you look at the, you know, values of the uh, cranial, cranial anterior kind of um, reaction forces here, they are always high. But that's also a, a kind of condition with, which is very difficult to replicate. You're not gonna, uh, unless you know um, there are other kind of issues during a tackle. But you're not gonna go uh, on purpose hit, hitting that the other player with the cranial part of a, with the anterior cranial part of your head. There's a spoiler there. There's all about the second the second kind of take home message, and uh, that's essentially the most important. Um, Kind of message, I think, message of the, of the lecture here, because really, it's the, for the first time, I think we managed to, hopefully, to answer to a specific question in relation to injury mechanism in rugby. So, before explaining that, I, want, I just want to clarify what are what what you know what are the diff, the two main kind of mechanisms that are um, in the analysis or you know we we'll want to analyze, and one is the hyperflexion. So, hyperflexion mechanism here is a mechanism related to a load applied to the posterior part of the skull, and mainly uh, is characterized by very high kind of flexion uh, moment uh, play on the spine. And the movement in the spine is clearly uh, a, flex a flexion movement for all the vertebrae. A, a bucking mechanism is, 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 is completely different. This kind of mechanism is characterized by mainly compressive load here, and, uh, and the spine has uh, got a behavior, which is the, the first between the lower cervical spine and the upper cervical spine. And what's happening at the lower cervical spine are more um, flexed and the, and the upper cervical spine more uh, standing. There are different order of buckling. There is a, a C kind of, sorry, there is a first order buckling where, where you see this kind of C shape, uh, but there's also a second order buckling where you see more S shape and the vertebra as well. So first thing to, to look at is the, you know, if you if you look at the load, the type of load that we apply, the type of load that you are, you know, um, likely to experience, experience during a tackle here is very much similar to the, you know, the direction of the load that you, um, you will have during a, a buckling type of um, injury. Also, if you look at some um, simulation that we have, what you can see really is that you got um, a double, um, you know, a different behavior between the, the lower cervical spine and the upper cervical spine, where the lower cervical spine is uh, in fact flexing and the upper cervical spine is extending, as you expect to see during a buckling type of injury or buckling type of loading pattern mainly. That was great uh, to show, you know, uh, what's happening during a simulation, but uh, I think uh, very, uh, it's good practice to show also what's happening in terms of uh, loading. 
And um, before you know, coming to any kind of conclusion, what you want to see is not just the actual uh, motion of the head, which can you know can be you know um, can can lie to you in some extent, because uh, if you look, for example, just a video analysis data, you can find you can see some. Uh, move, head movement which, which look more like a, a, a hyperflexion related mechanism but what you need to do is to integrate the motion of the vertebrae with the loading in fact if you look at the loading um, this is essentially um, this kind of graphs uh, figures have got several graphs if you look at the the columns you've got joint reaction forces uh, in compression in, uh, in shear anterior posterior shear and then flexion moments as well and the rows will be the three different um, loading, the cranial loading um, uh, condition that we have. So what you can see here, again, is that you've got this kind of um, uh, behavior of the, um, of the, of the vertebrae. So the other thing you can, you can look at is how different the vertebral joints are behaving. Um, and you can, you can check their kind of joint reaction forces values with respect to a uh, injury threshold that we got from uh, in vitro and in vivo kind of uh, studies from Nightingale and uh, uh, other studies here. So looking at this, what you can see is that there is a clear loading, uh, buckling loading pattern that is experienced by the cervical spine where you've got very high compressive load. And this compressive load is very high you know, across the board here, even uh, of course for the cranial anterior, as we said before, but for flex position is very high also for the cranial posterior. And uh, the, sh the shear forces are changing across the different interversal level, as you would expect during a, a buckling, having a buckling loading mechanism. Um, and, um, and the flexion moment is not that high. So to have a hyperflexion, really, you should have a very high flexion moment. So even though, so what we, if you see those uh, kind of values, you can say, well, they are very close to the limit, but they are not actually um, uh, over the limit. And uh, so, is, is some, everybody is, you know, is that an injury or not? That's a very difficult answer to, you know, that's a different question to, to answer. And uh, actually, nobody knows. And uh, what, what we believe is what is important to, to, this, to kind of highlight is that when what, what, you, well, what we are simulating here is the, is the head first impact on doing a tackle. And what we believe is happening is that the, after the first impact, the, cis, the cervical spine is buckling, is buckling in, in this way, and uh, is buckling and it gets to a new equilibrium point. And that equilibrium point, though, is an equilibrium point with a high um, loading, compressive loading uh, shear forces, which is classic, uh, classical buckling mechanisms. And after that, if you add on top some forces on the spine, that will cause, that might end up in different type of injuries. Um, but we do believe that all these injuries are driven by this kind of bucket mechanisms. Um, a more applied kind of uh, comment. Uh, I think this kind of, um, uh, res these results show the importance of technique. So I do believe that, as you can see, it's much more important to have a very good tackling technique and be sure that you are not flexing too much your head and you are putting the head in the right place rather than, for example, than going through like um, strengthening program for the muscles, which uh, can also create some um, issues because, the, you know, the higher is the muscle force, the higher is the compressive force that you experience at the spine as well. This is the last slide, so um, apologies, it was a bit longer than expected. Um, um, and I would like just to give you three kind of take home messages or, you know, things that I believe are very important. In sport biomechanics, uh, mainly in rugby activities as well, um, what you want to do 
is to be sure that you're using experimental data coming from different sources to then set up some computer simulation. This is key to have like reliable data. This is key to have like data that could be shown to uh, you know um, coaches, athletes that have you know a real application in the real world. The second is if you're doing some modeling, guys, less is more. So uh, if you use a very complex model, is very much is very difficult to validate it. It's very difficult to verify it. It's very difficult to to have control on it. So and we have got so many kind of different inputs and and uh, and so many things that can go wrong. Um, you want to have a model that you can control very well. And finally, I think I I, uh, I would like to, to think about that. We can we, we kind of demonstrate that in silico approaches can be used to inform the design of a. Uh, um, you know, or of intervention and, and ensure translation to real-world decision-making processes. Or at least they should be used to help out um, this kind of decision-making processes rather than going through the uh, testing, rather than testing intervention uh, directly on players. And that's it. Apologies, I was, I was a bit late. Brilliant. Thanks, Dario. Um, yeah, I think that's great. I really like kind of the thorough going through the integrated approach, so the in vivo, in vitro, in silico. I think you said early on that you thought you might be a jack of all trades, but master of none. I think after the last hour, like, it's definitely clear you're a master of all three. Um, so yeah, sure really, really impressive. Um, yeah, and I like kind of finishing on, especially that point number two, when it comes to modeling, that less is definitely more in a lot of situations, really. Um, yeah, so if anybody watching has got any questions, type them in the chat and then we'll go through those in a moment. Um, and then have you got your last slide up? Oh, sorry. Yes. That's brilliant. Thank you. So, yeah, just if you think, if you're interested in rugby, then one of the previous talks by Alex Atak was on place kicking biomechanics that you might find um, really interesting. But otherwise, kind of next week, we've got Todd Pataki comparing discrete and continuous data analysis methods, which is a really important topic in biomechanics generally. And then the week after, over on the ISBS YouTube channel, I believe I heard there's over 60 presentations going up. So they're all, I think, on average, around about 10 minutes. Um, but in place of the conference that would have been happening at this time of year, there'll be 60 conference presentations so, um, on a range of different sports biomechanics topics. So go and have a look at those. Um, yeah, so question time. Um, I think, yeah, the main kind of first one for me, Dario, was just what's next? So I guess what does the future hold for this area of estimating spinal load in rugby? Yeah, uh, th th you know, um, that's a great question. There are many things that we need to improve, really. Um, Something that I really um, probably haven't touched upon very much because uh, for the sake of time is that, uh, you know, the simulation that I showed before, our simulation, um, can I go back with the slide to show something as well? Or, yes. Yeah, go for it. Um, you know, here we essentially used some um, vectors uh, apply, applying force to the, to, the, to the head and that's a limitation to it because actually when you are tackling someone, that kind of vector might change um, the point of application and might change magnitude and might change magnitude with respect to what the other player is doing. So to me, the actual future is related to using 
content models, integrated content, reliable content models with um, forward dynamic simulations. And uh, I'm lucky enough to, to, you know, to collaborate with um, Kiran Simpson and Conor McCarthy from uh, the Trinity College in Dublin, and they've been doing great work on uh, estimating the content parameters of content models using Madimo, which is a different type of model that usually it is usually used in pedestrian accident kind of research. And um, I think um, this model can be passive or active. I believe that this one uh, uh, was mainly passive, and they set up some forward dynamic simulation uh, using the data that our you know we kind of collect in our using the punching bag and the uh, and the rugby players uh, as I shown before, and they managed to actually replicate a very um, um, very close behavior of both the punching bag and the and the player doing a, that kind of impact. So if you believe that this is a forward dynamic simulation and the, you know, the, uh, I think the white markers are the experimental one and the red one uh, we're going through is the, is the simulated one, you get, you get very close kind of uh, uh, behavior of, of both the um, player and, uh, and, and the punch back. So in ideal world, you can, if you got, if we, I can use this kind of content parameters to then simulate that, um, to run the simulation I showed you before, using content models and therefore having a, a much more realistic, I think, uh, force um, generation that is changing depending on what, for example, the, the ball carrier is doing. That's to me is the, is the, is the, is the, is the main one, is a future kind of uh, challenges. Thanks, Dario. So next questions come through from Josh Baxter, who says, really impressive work. Do you think your approach scales with athlete level? So do children tackle proportionate to their anatomy and their strength compared to college and pro athletes? And how might that change your modeling or conclusions? Um, hi, Josh. And great, great question, as usual. Um, yeah, so the short answer is, um, I don't know. Um, what I believe is that uh, probably my answer would be, no, it doesn't scale directly. Uh, you, the forces are very different i actually kind of youth rugby um you know has got different rules as well so the you, you what you need to do is to be sure that you collect some experimental data at least some video data um to to be sure that you are replicating you know the the loading and the energy dissipation and the energy that is related to a more kind of a, a youth kind of rugby uh, tackle uh, or scrum um and uh, and the, even the information about the, you know, uh, muscle uh, strength, and uh, you know, you can play around with the muscle activation maybe, but I think mainly you want, but you want to know more about the load and uh, um, about what's happening. So it's not, I think it's very much non-linear what, what we see and uh, can can change a lot depending on the on the players and, and the technique. Okay, thank you. So you mentioned rules at one point in there. That kind of leads me on to another thing I was thinking about. I'm not an expert in rugby by any means, but I know there have been recent rule changes around tackling. Kind of what effect could that have on any of this work? And I guess what effect does does your work have on possible rule changes as well, if that makes sense? Uh, thanks, mate. I tried to avoid that question as much as I could. Uh, uh, no but yes, uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah. So uh, I think... I think that's a great point. And uh, so as you might know, um, in new kind of um, tackling 
height rule has been trialed in the championship um, rugby and uh, and um, and actually there was because the idea is that uh, we wanted to uh, there was trial mainly to minimize the concussion risk during tackling um, and the idea was what they tried to do is to decrease the tackle height and what they they saw essentially is that actually uh, the um, the ball carrier when they they knew that the tackle couldn't could have been uh, perform a very uh, should have been performed at very low height. They start to crouch. So at that point, the um, the, the likelihood of getting concussed got even uh, greater because they had to have impact with like even closer, being the two players very close and crouching down that in that way. Um, so I think that uh, you can. I think I think you can use this kind of simulation to understand uh, what are. The uh, the highest kind of um, um, the highest risks related to tackle height, and um, to, to to do that though you need to have a content model. So that's very much linked to, to what I said before. But if you have a content model and if you can model the interaction um, between the head and the actual um, thorax of the of the other player of the ball carrier, then you can then simulate um, you know very specific um, conditions like the pocketing of the head potentially or you know how the the the, um, the, the load is, is transmitted uh, depending on the different positions and uh, yeah so I believe to me uh, that you know in silico kind of analysis simulation could at least be used to explore different hypotheses and then and then this kind of information can be used to inform different scenarios so yes I hope we're going to do it Great. I look forward to hearing more about that. But I think that's another really interesting example, actually, of how you change one parameter and then everything else changes. So you might think changing one thing makes it safer, but then people adapt to those different constraints by changing their technique and suddenly something else is now the risk factor. And then you've got to address that. I think it's really interesting case study, really, there. Um, Oh, another question. Um, so could your model be used to evaluate strains on the skull uh, which dissipates as part of the impact? Very good question. And actually something I, want, I would like to, uh, to clarify as well. Um, no, so the answer is no. So we're using a MSK model and uh, you cannot calculate any, any strain on the skull uh, because it's an MSK model, it's a rigid body model. Um, so, what we so the, the, when you use this kind of models, what you need to know is to when to stop the simulation. So, if you got a simulation that is, is generating deformation onto the skull, uh, then uh, the skull or other kind of uh, structure, you need to essentially um, go back and rerun the simulation up to the point at which you, the simulation you think is reliable. In an ideal world, that's sorry, and we do that mainly because. Using MSK models is much easier than using FE models, and there's, there is a direct link between the in vivo in vitro data that you you collect, and you can set it up very easily. In an ideal world, we, we actually well we've been we, we started to do as well with other colleagues from our mechanics department um, here at Bath, so Sabina Geduzzi, Richard Gill, and uh, Bruno Hernandez, um, is to have a for a, a finite element model as well. And um, what you can do, you can uh, set the uh, initial condition of the FE model, getting information from the the simulation that you run uh, with the with the MSK. So you don't need to run the full simulation with the FE model, but you you know 
you run the simulation uh, up to the point in which the MSK model is good enough. And then after that, you run a FE model uh, simulation. And then in this case, if you want to get some strain um, or stresses kind of uh, related type of analysis, that's what you're supposed to do. So it's taking your integrated approach even further. Yes, even, even further. Yes. Another type of model into the integrated approach. Yes. Um, okay. So, yeah, last thing really for me is why pig? So was there a particular <laughs> reason why you went for pig spines? Uh, yeah, I asked that question to my close friend, Tim Hosgrove, the first time I, uh, I, we did that kind of um, test. And... Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's about, so there are, there are many kind of um, study in the literature, mainly injury biomechanics, more kind of in vitro biomechanics, uh, showing that the material properties of the vertebra and uh, intervertebral discs of the, of the pigs are quite similar to the one of the humans. And um, you can also use um, ovine kind of um, vertebra as well. So you can use sheep and um and cows as well, uh, but um, it depends also on the availability. So, and our local butcher has more like pigs than anything else <laughs> now. Uh, and so, I think uh, I think that's that's the reason why you use pigs. And uh, the only problem with pigs is you need to be sure that the um, spinal curvature is not too um, dissimilar with to the to the human one. So, if you got like a specimen with a very high curvature then it's, it's not great because when you run tests, it's going to be very different from the human spine. Okay, interesting. Thanks for that. Um, so yeah, just another huge thank you for the presentation and for the Q&A at the end. If anybody watches this back, say tomorrow or next week at any point, and they've got any questions, is there a best way of getting in touch or asking any yeah, I mean, I'm uh, very happy to, to do so. You can um, drop me an email. There is a my email address there uh, on my slide. You can also use uh, my uh, own Twitter as well. Um, so be kind if you say something on Twitter with me, but I'm happy to, uh, <laughs> to answer those questions there. Um, yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Daria. Thank you.